And this is where really a product manager can help and be that liaison between the business side and the data science side to say, okay, to decrease time, I know that I have to have a very high precision. And that just means that I go through all the findings very fast. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Shraki. Each week, Armand will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Welcome to another episode of SaaS Scale. I'm pleased to have Reha Janjanwala with us in this episode. She is product manager, but in particular product manager VI within AI ML initiatives in eClinical Solutions. So welcome to this discussion, Reha. Thank you so much for having me on, Arman. Tell us a little bit about your background and the company also that you're working with, please. So I'm a dentist by training after dental school. I practiced dentistry for a few years and really enjoyed it. Healthcare has always been a field I've enjoyed working in and practicing in. And then after a few years, I was looking for something to diversify in. And I got my master's in clinical and translational research. Really, the idea there is to take a discovery people make bedside and translate it out into the market, make it commercially viable and successful. Around that time, I worked in a lot of different departments in the hospital, the rheumatology, pulmonary, dental, pediatric, outpatient departments to really understand how healthcare system works and what are the biggest challenges of getting new innovation used in clinical practice. After that, I moved into Caltech. I really enjoyed my time there and I wanted to focus on digital technology and how you could really take advantage of digital technology with all of this data we're collecting in the hospitals and leverage it for better care for patients especially focus on machine learning and deep learning, where my previous company, we did pathology detection on dental imaging. So you go to your dentist, they take an x-ray, but you go to three different dentists and you get three different diagnoses. And what we were doing was really making sure that you get one standard diagnosis every time you go to the dentist. And that was a fantastic experience. And I got to learn about the benefit of machine learning, deep learning and healthcare. And my current company, eClinical Solutions, we do clinical trial data management. So we support pharmaceutical industries for drug development, and we have a lot of data coming out of these trials. How do you best manage it? How do you clean it? How do you make sure there's data quality? You monitor for safety signals. How do you really make sure that you maintain that FDA thought of efficacy and safety? So your drug is doing what you said it is going to do, but it's not harming the patients. So what I really focus on is how do you use these advanced technologies, statistics, AI, machine learning, you know, they're all advanced statistics. How do you use that and leverage that to read this data, to get safety signals, to clean it, to maybe flag something a human cannot? 
or we have more and more sources. Right now, your Apple Watch might trigger a health event. What happens if you're in a study? What happens if you are currently a cancer patient on a new drug? How do we read that information? How can we look at each data point as a human? We cannot. So I'm currently working with the team to develop technologies, to look at clinical trial data, to read it, to flag any concerns and really get patients medicine faster. Fantastic. So I know that software by itself has a lot of flexibilities and sophistication. Now you add the data as a new dimension to it, and it just makes everything even more fluid and the data dimension. Now you add another dimension to it, that is the machine learning and AI, and the aspect that software is now can be also an entity that can learn and change the behavior. How do you see that this may change the development process and also the product management process of building a software when you add all of these dimensions all together compared to the old-fashioned way of just writing the software without thinking that much about the data dimension and machine learning and AI? Today, as a product manager, if you're working with any solution that uses machine learning or deep learning, the process, while similar, is slightly different because it's not just the same as writing a ticket with requirements and ACs an engineer can test. It's slightly different where the pain points are different, where you want to really make sure that you're solving a pain point, which is a human pain point, but now the model does not behave exactly as the way you want it to. It is slightly more unpredictable than writing a piece of code, which will perform exactly what you want it to do. When I write a ticket for my engineers, I say, I want a button, which when I click it, it takes me to this URL. And, you know, it will do that. With a model, I say that I want to find a anomalous data point, but what will the precision and recall be? How well will it really function? It's never 100%. And this is where when you take that unpredictability of how well the model will learn and how long development even takes, it puts the entire product development cycle with the AIMO solution slightly different. There's the increased dimension of unpredictability, not in just performance, but also in time. So that's something where I would definitely say that it's been an interesting learning curve of how do you manage and in parallel do both model development, but also front-end development. Does it change the kind of development cycle? So in a regular way, when you do the development, there are some standards. Now, of course, you can go with different methodologies. And But how does it change the cycle? Like you go to the regular cycle as you were doing in the software development, or you think that is definitely makes the cycle maybe less predictive or it makes it shorter or it makes it longer? What is the impact of these assets? That's a great question. So while what I have seen with trial and error that's worked successfully for me is somewhere between an agile and a waterfall where let's take a step back and think about the software development cycle. You have the discovery phase, which will be similar. You talk to people, you understand what's the pain point and the change here is you want to make sure you get technical feedback from your machine learning or data scientist to say is this something you think we can reasonably automate we can develop a model for which will have a performance which will solve the pain point so this is slightly different where generally you write a ticket and you get some feedback from your engineers and grooming but you want to develop even before you do that product development you want to get feedback from data scientists early on that's one difference now when you're doing the actual modeling this has to come before development of your software 
I would highly suggest that you do a MVP with your data scientist of what really can this model do, because no data scientist can reasonably tell you how well this model works. So doing an MVP really helps understand what might the front end be, what would the workflow be, and that helps you do the wireframes, get your engineering team in there. So that's an additional step where before you start developing the front end or how users will interact with it, do an MVP of the model. Now, the MVP might be a few weeks or a few months, but doing that will just tell you if this is a good product or a good problem solved. Or is it too technical, hard, or time-consuming, and it's just not what the value plan to bring? So that's slightly different, but this is where the waterfall comes in to say, you have to have an MVP before you can do the software development. And starting there, you can continue more agile sprint-by-sprint development. But what would be great here, and I always say this is fail fast with machine learning products. You might, because you're day in, day out working with a product, understand the machine learning output. To you, the workflow makes sense. You understand why the model called something is an outlier and you're a believer, but your end user might not be a believer in these technologies. And depending on the model, it's generally a black box. So if you fail fast, it's better because you might change the way the output works. You might make the model different to have more explainability. And yeah, using that combination of both waterfall and agile while being flexible is probably going to lead to the best product. And from business aspect of it, from looking at it from the business side, software has always just maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but software has been the value of in business software has been automating and saving time in a very kind of, again, simplistic way if you look at it. And you utilize the software in order to automate something, to increase the productivity, to make it faster with less resources, you can do the same thing with less errors and everything. Do you think that traditional kind of definition that I just offered, that simplified version, will still apply to the new age of software that is based on machine learning, AI, and all of those things, or there is something added to that value? So I would say there are two points here. One, I think the simple definition still applies, but you can expect this to not be 1x or 2x, but 5x, 10x, 20x, depending on what you're doing, right? Think about it. When you develop a model, it's never getting tired. It can look at a thousand data points, 10,000, million, 2 million. It really depends now on your business development team and sales team on how well can they sell it. How well can they convince a user to use it? And the more customers you have, you see an exponential gain because you don't have to hire, retain, and then provide a service. It's always mm-hmm. been a case with software subscriptions because you're saving time, you're increasing revenue, you're finding more subjects, more patients, more customers. The value add is just exponentially more. The other point here, though, is just like a software, you might not see this revenue come immediately. When you develop a piece of software, it works, you sell it, tomorrow you can deploy it. There might not be a lot of custom work you might you need to do. For these models, depending on the model kind, you might need to do some fine tuning. You might need to do some customization. You might want to do some due diligence before you deploy it for a new customer. There's a slight increased time to when you might see those revenues flowing in, even though it's more. So that's two maybe things to think about from the business side to say, even though it's slower, it might be significantly more. The other thing from the metric side I've seen generally that is different with these models is the business metric and the data science metric. 
And there's a big difference between those, right? I develop a new product and my business metric might be decreased time by 60% or increased revenue by 20% or increase customer retention by 30% or adoption. That is something I know I can use to make a sale. That's not what a data scientist understands. I'm not going into them and saying, we want to increase revenue by 20%. The metric they are going to use is going to be slightly different. Precision needs to be X percent. Your recall needs to be at Y percent. You need to have a very low false positive rate. And this is where really a product manager can help and be that liaison between the business side and the data science side to say, Okay, to decrease time, I know that I have to have a very high precision. And that just means that I go through all the findings very fast. Because if I'm showing 10 problems to a human for review, and all 10 of them are actual problems, they'll gain trust and start doing those reviews very fast. And so this is where it's very important to have a metric you discuss with your data science team, which is accurate. Because if they start tuning these models for something where it does not align with the business value, you've spent all of this time, all of this resource, and you won't realize that business goal. And it has nothing to do with the model or the data science. It's more a product communication problem. You are working in a domain and in a vertical that is highly regulated for good reasons, healthcare, right? And then, of course, you know, in the past, when software came to healthcare, we have seen that software had to go through extra processes in any software product when it's in healthcare because of those regulations and compliance and everything in order to pass those kind of, I would say, criteria to be accepted and then be used. Now, how does it work with not just software, but with AI and ML? Are there some particular regulations around that? Or it's just still old regulations that applies to software still there? And how do you see it? Do you see that it's coming? Or do you think it's sufficient what we have? It applies to everything and it doesn't need to be really more comprehensive to cover actually some of the risk factors involved with the machine learning and AI. What's your take on that, Fab? It's one of my favorite topics to think about and discuss. I worked in two companies, which were both very highly regulated. For a first device, it was classified as software as a medical device. So similar to the way a stent gets checked and regulated, that software was regulated. And for the second one, because we do data management for drugs and devices, which will get FDA approval, how we clean that data or regulate that data is heavily monitored and regulated by the FDA. Now, there are two, as I mentioned, there are a lot of different rules on really the risk, the oversight, and the requirements from a regulatory aspect. One, if you're developing a software which is going to be used as a medical device, like a CAD-E, CAD-X, where you are triaging patients, diagnosing problems, then it requires a higher burden of really showing that safety and efficacy I mentioned before. The second layer, if you're doing something which where the impact or the risk is not tremendous, then you require less oversight. Really, the FDA is taking this fantastic risk-based approach to say, what is the impact of your machine learning model on the outcome? And what's the impact? How likely will this happen? Do you have any safeguards in place? And so they've taken a very practical approach. The regulations around this are still developing. Four years ago, when we started, there were 18 devices which were clear. Now we have about 138, if I'm not wrong. 
So the FDA has really done a fantastic job changing guidelines. They've come up with a lot of guidelines on what kind of documentation do you need to provide? How do you show that your device is safe? They also are taking a lot of open meetings from companies who are doing this day in and day out and experts to get their feedback and update their regulation. That being said, we still need some improvement. We all know that ethics and AI has been a big talking point in the industry for a few years now. And when the impact is on a patient's health, for good reasons, we need to be more conscious. Now, how do we balance being conscious and not stifling innovation? Is that hard balance the FDA has been trying to work around for a few years? You've seen a lot of companies doing more than required where I've worked with my colleagues and spoken to them where even if the FDA does not require a certain kind of analysis, companies have gone in good faith, done that analysis, because while the FDA might not need analysis or a test, you know that physicians are going to ask for it. Hospitals are going to ask for it. So in a show of good faith, a lot of these companies are going out of their way to do really demonstrate that their training data is equitable, it is representative, that they've done their testing, they'll show their results on a big demographics and really have pilot studies where some hospitals, some small group of physicians use it so that not only from the result standpoint, it's great, but also from a workflow standpoint, it's, it makes sense because mm. maybe my software works fantastically, but it keeps pinging and disturbing a nurse who's working in the hospital. That's not a great use experience because maybe the nurse is not spending a lot of time on her computer instead of seeing a patient and missing something. So what a lot of these companies are doing is going above and beyond, but also taking that learning and letting the FDA know what they think makes sense and what does not. When you look at where we are with regard to machine learning and AI in the applications that we are familiar with, especially in healthcare, but maybe in general, but we can focus and talk just about healthcare and that's okay too. What is slowing us down? Where are the frictions that cause kind of moving slower than we can? So if you look at those kind of factors, what are the obvious ones that come to your mind? And you would say, these are the elements that maybe is kind of a little bit creating some friction or creating causes some kind of a slowness. And when we overcome these, then it would be faster, better progress, move forward in an accelerated way. Any particular parameters come to your mind? That, so there are uh, two big ones, I think. One on the development side and the second one on the deployment side, which slow, you know, both development and the actual deployment of these technologies. On the development side, it's data, where to train any good model, to test it, you need data, which is representative of your world population. And depending on the industry you work with, finding that data that's representative is hard. A lot of companies that develop this technology are not data providers. They are not a service provider, and so they don't have that data to begin with. And getting that data can be very hard, depending on your use case, how much data you need. So that's definitely something where the industry needs to become more aware that if they want to use some of these new technologies for smaller companies, they need to be more collaborative. It cannot be a B2B industry where I develop a software and sell it to you. I need some collaboration if you want some of the smaller companies to innovate. That's on the development side. Now on the deployment side, what I've seen is change management is hard. Where mm -hmm. when we sell, we sell to the C-suite and they're all about 20% increase in revenue or adoption rate. What we forget sometimes is that the people who are actually going to use it 
don't really realize the benefit. And they're reluctant to get more and more technology in because it's disruptive. So for any person using a new piece of technology that is a different workflow can be hard. And so that's something where it would make sense to, as I said, do those pilots early on to really see how can you make it easier and more seamless in their day-to-day to use and adopt the technology because they don't want to. Is there any particular topic that you would like to touch on? Of course, for me, not being super expert in healthcare and not being a product manager in AI and ML, I'm pretty sure I have missed a lot of questions and good points to raise. So I wanted to give you that opportunity that is there any particular topic you would like to highlight and maybe explore a little bit more? Maybe one we can talk about is that model metric we spoke about. And how do you, for a new age product manager, how do they work with a data science team? How to develop that know-how of data science and write a user story or a requirement for them? So something I've really noticed is that working with data scientists is different than working with software engineers. And it does require a certain baseline knowledge of data science, biostats, and what would be most helpful is one explaining to the data scientist the use case of what's the pain point, what are you trying to solve and why, and then figuring out with them on what could the model be, understanding if it's supervised, why, what kind of data are they using? Because your data science team might not really know because they're not on the ground of what's the perfect data. Supporting them on selecting that data, cleaning that data, just with your expertise, or if you're not the expert, finding an SME who can guide them in the right kind of training data. How do you ground through? That's something that definitely is a sore point and Mm -hmm. is very beneficial, but finding an SME who really understands what is your model doing, because no model will replicate human behavior perfectly. So working with a data scientist and SME on, this is your normal workflow, this is what the model is doing, and this is what we're testing. So ground truthing correctly, annotating correctly. Those are definitely pieces that are not taken care of by a data scientist. It could be a product manager's job, but even if you're not doing it, you want to keep a tab on it because that will heavily influence the way the model performs in the end. So ground truthing, annotation, and then really getting that SME to provide information on what's the right model metric. A very simple example is we fight between precision and recall. For anyone who does not know, precision is if I have 10 predictions made by the model and eight are correct, my precision is 80%. Recall is how many do I get correctly? If there are 10 points I should have found because they are true, and I find six, my recall is 60%. Now, the ideal would be 100% recall, 100% precision. That will almost never happen. And so this is where you work with your data science team to say, which one do you think from a business standpoint should be fine-tuned and improved upon? And I will give you two examples here. Maybe my use case is to find more cases of cavities because that's what we now want to treat. In this instance, you want to have a higher recall, but you want to understand what trade-off can you make with precision. If I show three cavities to a dentist and two are correct, one is wrong, maybe they're okay. If I show them 10, three are correct, eight are wrong, probably not okay. But this is where it's important to understand that your business metric is saying, I want to find more because I want more treatment options, or I want to reduce the time. So maybe focus on precision. 
because everything I want to check will become a bad check. And this is where, you know, when you go to a data science team, they'll want the perfect model who does everything perfectly. But maybe our 80% recession and 70% recall is good enough for your problem. You don't need 90 and 80. This is where you need to set a cutoff requirement and then work with your data science team to say, we're done. The model is good enough to deploy to production. We can keep improving it, but it does not need to be perfect. I think that's an important metric to keep in check. Very good point. I would like to ask you also for any book or books that you would like to recommend, something that you have found useful. Absolutely. So when I remember reading, I believe I read it a few years ago, called Nudge by Richard mm -hmm. Taylor, which is fantastic. I think it's one of those books like Thinking Slow and Acting Fast, which really makes you pause and think about the effect and the consequences of small things. We all say attention to detail is important, but how changing the slide presentation or the number of options could nudge people in a completely different direction is fantastic. It's something you don't think about. It also makes you pause and think, when is a nudge a shove? What is the difference between that? When is it okay to nudge and when is it okay to not nudge? So I think it gives you some of those more like more pieces of information you can use in your day-to-day, -day, but also makes you pause and think about the more existential questions of when can you do something, when is it okay, and when it's not. I really enjoyed reading that. I think it touches on how a simple nudge can be used in everything from finance, marriage, healthcare, public policy. And for me reading it, I was very surprised by how obvious some of those nudges were but how hard they can be when you're thinking about something even like product development or coming up with a business strategy. So if you've not read that, I would highly recommend that one. The other one, just two others maybe are, I really enjoyed, you've not read the HBR uh, mm -hmm. series, but they have one on managing yourself where everyone talks about being a manager and how that means managing others. But I think they have this fantastic article on how you should treat your body like an athlete, where just the way the athletes train and there's mental stamina, physical stamina required, how that's important for you to be at the peak of your performance or productivity, how managing your energy is very important. And I think that's probably something we all forget and don't focus on enough. It's always more external versus internal. So when I read that, it made me really pause and think about what's important to me and how do I manage my time, my resource, and my energy. So that's a very nice one. And in general, I read a lot of philosophy recently, which has been very nice. I started reading some basic Plato, a lot of it on democracy or everything going out in the world. I think it's given me a nice way to pause and think about how I fit in and how our current democracy or everything happening around us is not very different than really problems 500 years ago. The same philosophers spoke about a lot of what we're asking today 500 years ago. And maybe reading that helps you pause and be the devil's advocate and question things around you. So I really enjoyed reading some of those like Republic reading one called the representative principles of the representative government on um, not really a democracy we're a representative government which has been nice fantastic thank you again for participating in this discussion i enjoyed the discussion as well and hope to see you again absolutely this podcast. Yeah. thank you so much for having me <laughs> thank you take care bye-bye thank you for listening to sas scaled with arman ashragi for show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sascale.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. 
Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve A, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.